it's a rejection of a traditional romanticism in favor of what I'm tempted to call a communist romanticism. Yes, it's forward-looking it romance. Tinder. What's that? Why well, he needs Tinder. Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have to peep through the keyholes. Oh, God. You just figure out if there's someone in your area. I, I do I think that there is some mileage that you can get out of imagining sometimes what these historical figures would have thought of mm-hmm. our technologies. I mean, like Vertov and the camera phone is obvious, yes. right? Yes. I do think that Mayakovsky would have ripped it up on Twitter for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, what would he have thought? What would any of them have thought of a, a world where you could just figure it out whether there was somebody nearby who was DTF? I, I was going to say, do they say DTF still? They say, <laughs> yeah. do. No, 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 the kids don't. Don't no. only us. I mean, I don't, but right, <laughs> um, only when I'm talking about Mayakovsky. So he I, goes, I think Mayakovsky would say DTF. He was so DTF. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no one was DTF for him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the problem. Welcome to The Pointless Century, where we discuss literature, politics, and culture in an attempt to figure out what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. Tonight, we'll be thinking about comparisons between futurist movements in different countries, the constraints of sex and love under capitalism, why Mayakovsky was indeed DTF, and as always, communism. Welcome to The Pointless Century. I'm your host, Frank Fucile. I uh, study 20th century literature, film, and culture. You can read my poetry in Locust Review and my writing on film in, I don't know, a few places. We are joined today by our special guest, Alexander Billet. He's a writer, a musician, an artist. You may have read his music reviews in The Jacobin. And he also has published poetry in The Locust Review and perhaps elsewhere. Yeah, and just pretty much what Frank said. I write about arts and culture from a left-wing perspective. I'm a founding editor at Locust Review, uh, along with a few other people. Uh, I've also been in not just Jacobin, but recently had a piece in the Los Angeles Review of Books on the legacy of Mark Fisher. I had a piece in Salvage, which is a British Marxist journal that I'm particularly proud of. Longest thing I've ever written, 13,000 words. It was basically a dissertation. I was really proud of that one. So yeah, I am obsessed with the intersection between radical politics and radical philosophy and artistic expression. That thankless obsession is what draws me here. Yes, of course. You're one of the elite few regular (laughs) listeners to our podcast. (laughs) It's a good podcast. We're also, of course, as always, joined by our uh, research assistants, a historian in training, Rachel Uh, Homily. Homily. She, her historian in training, I am interested in queer diversity and um, equity diversity and inclusion issues. I'm Anna Wendorf, and every time that we meet, I guess I add something else to my academic plan, you know, so I'm interested in English, communications, philosophy, and then legal studies, as well as feminism. 
somehow they let me into the Locust Review. Yeah. We, we were proud to publish your poetry. It was, re- it was really a great submission. And you're a visual artist as well. I guess you could say that. Like Mayakovsky, both a visual artist and a poet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to start by asking you, Alex, how has Mayakovsky influenced your writing and what does he sort of mean to you? Because obviously I see that in your work and we've talked about it sort of in passing, but this is obviously our first major discussion of it. What's the deal with Mayakovsky? It was probably my senior year of high school is when I started reading him and I didn't understand him in the fucking least. Maybe it was just like pure stubbornness and the fact that I was starting to sort of suss out what my politics were and flesh out that, you know, I am a socialist, I am a Marxist. And so his proximity to the Russian revolution and radical politics was such that I sort of just felt like, even if I don't understand this guy, I should act like I do just keep reading him. And then somehow after several years of doing that, I I think there was something particularly about going through my 20s when I did with the the collapse of the financial system and being completely unable to find a job for several years and everything like that. And actually years after I decided what my politics were, actually going through something like actually struggling with poverty and the vicissitudes of capitalism. And then Mayakovsky started to make sense to me. It's always a, a bit of a crapshoot when I try to say what any of the poets who have really influenced me the most, be they Anne Sexton or Neruda or whoever. But I think with Mayakovsky, what sticks in me is this idea that him as a futurist would putting forth that we need to sort of smash the past in order to build a future. But also there's this contradiction, this irony in it, which is that he can only do that in reference to the past. Yeah. And so it's this notion... And I'm sure we'll talk about this later about the state of Russia, the very combined and uneven development of Russia and things like that. But the fact that actual struggle, actually going through life under capitalism, as well as imperialism, racism, sexism, misogyny, and all of the above, leaves you with these scars that you can never fully ignore if you are ever going to be able to sort of write your own future, your own history. The most obvious place where Mayakovsky is impacting my poetry is in, I think it was in the second issue of Locust Review, uh, To Mayakovsky While Australia Burns. And it's a sort of wrestling with, okay, how do we accelerate our imaginations into an alternative future when entire continents are literally burning and just sort of being cast into the memory hole? It seems to really cut against this idea that time is just this linear one thing after another thing, that there's reference points and different utopias that pop up in our heads, moments of rupture. And ultimately, there's a place where human beings, the oppressed, the subaltern, are able to intervene in those ruptures. Understanding that we are treated like nothing, and yet we should be everything, is a massive weight on our shoulders. And it can create beautiful, heartbreaking, revelatory, psychedelic, terrifying, horrifying images and moments and thoughts. Those have got to be worth putting down on paper. That's why I keep going back to his poetry. That's why he's not one of those people that I think is great when I first read him and then I go back. I'm like, ah, there's not much here. No, there's always something. (laughs) He's not T.S. Eliot. (laughs) (laughs) No Um, comments on that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, from my own experience, I think T.S. Eliot's a really good example for me of a poet who I was sure was a really big deal and really deep. Mm-hmm. And I still will probably always teach the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, much mm-hmm. to the disgust of all the 18-year-olds who have to deal with me. 
But other than that, I don't really get a whole lot out of Elliot. I mean, actually, I like The Hollow Men, but I find him very disappointing as a great writer. On the other hand, I've found Mayakovsky for me does what great writing is supposed to do, which is when I come back to it, I keep finding new things. It still has the ability to be new to me. And I think Mm -hmm. that part of that is because it's so difficult to translate and I don't know a word of Russian. Sometimes when you read different translations, you are literally reading different poems. And there is that beautiful unknowability about him. And then the fact that so many of his poems are so long, I find fascinating. That's Mm -hmm. one thing that I have really learned from him especially Mm. over the past couple of years. One of my other favorite poets is the exact opposite of Mayakovsky. His name is Sparrow. He's still alive and still working Mm. out of the Catskills in upstate New York. He sort of hit his stride in the 90s with the Unbearables, if you've heard of that crew. And he would write these very, very short poems, like some people call them anti-poems. And and they're like kind of cool in this very concrete sense of, you know, is it a poem? Fuck you, it's a poem, you know? Yeah, Uh, (laughs) yeah. It's mere existence is the meat. Yeah. Yeah. And in a certain sense, though, what any group of artists who are coming to put their mark on the literary world in any era are doing uh, with any sense of radicalism is they're going to push that envelope and ask, okay, well, what is a poem? And Mayakovsky does that. He does it in a way that's probably not the way that, you know, anyone would do it these days, though, sadly, I think that I am cursed to attempt to do it, but that's my own cross to bear. But that's to say that this pushing of the envelope, of course, always fascinates me. That's why I'm interested in 20th century literature and art. That's why I'm interested in modernism. That's why I'm interested in futurism. And I think the historical contingency that led the Russian futurists to go more in the direction of communism, with Mayakovsky Mm -hmm. being the Mm -hmm. key example there, unlike the Italian futurists who, of course, were not entirely fascist, but mainly fascists. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Certainly Um, Marinetti and the the best known ones. Yeah, Yeah. and Mayakovsky was strongly influenced by Marinetti in the years before the First World War, which is really interesting. But of course, he goes in exactly the opposite direction, politically speaking. And so I think that that's really cool. And I think that, as you said, with your thinking about the trajectory of history, of course, as a Marxist and as, you know, not only thinking of it as something that moves along, but something that we help to move it along. Like in a sort of dark way lately, I've come around to this notion of history as almost a cyclical thing. I'm not into it in the political sense. I understand how there's a strong history of the cyclical version of history being a kind of conservative or even Mm -hmm. sometimes fascist trope. But I do think that it has a wonderful poetic resonance to it that fascinates Mm -hmm. me. And that's sort of, I guess, sadly, the premise behind this whole podcast. That's why the 20th century is the pointless century, because here we are (laughs) fighting the exact same fucking battles again 100 years later. So I don't know what he means to me because he's meant so many different things to me at different times. Yes, of course, the pandemic included. Absolutely. That's what mm-hmm. we, I, I actually taught Catherine Ann Porter's Pale Horse, Pale Rider. There wasn't nearly enough written about the 1918 flu, sadly. I think it was so embarrassing for people. They didn't want to talk about it at all. And we're just kind of setting ourselves up to do that again. But I think that there'll be probably an excruciating yeah. amount written about this one. 
well, there already has been an excruciating yeah. amount written about this one and a, a lot of it quite embarrassing. But just to highlight the point, when the pandemic first started, when we all had to retreat indoors and we're like, what the hell is this virus doing? I went back and tried to look at the influenza pandemic of 1918. And this is relevant to the conversation about Mayakovsky. That was happening right around the time, like concurrent with sort of the foment and decline of the Russian Revolution. True, and true. I tried to find anything, any consistent resource about what was the death toll of yeah. the influenza pandemic in revolutionary Russia? Nothing. If we're um, to believe no. the film version of Dr. Zhivago, it's because the communists suppressed all those statistics. Oh, God. I'm more likely to believe that there was just too much shit going on for anybody to keep track of it. Yes, there was a freaking civil war happening. <laughs> Both not... are probably true. I mean, on the one hand, it's completely logical, of course. But on the other hand, it's frustrating. Like, I couldn't even find anything written other than maybe a few short scanned articles. I couldn't even find yeah. anything about what the American left press from the Communist Party or Socialist well, that's Party the, was saying. The problem is that it. while it was happening, especially during the war, every country that was fighting the war censored any news of it ruthlessly, which is why it ended up being known as the Spanish flu, because that was a neutral country. Oh, hell, you know, they I actually reported on it in Spain, as opposed right. to everywhere else where the wartime press ruthlessly censored it. Oh, Christ. Yeah. You know what? That makes perfect sense. The thinking now is that it probably started in like, I think, Kansas, if I'm remembering correctly. But, right. but everybody assumed right. that it came from Spain because that was the only country that was reporting on it. Right. Anna, right. in the Dr. Zhivago novel, is the pandemic mentioned ever? From what I remember, no. Even if it is, it's only in passing. Yeah. Well, I know that you have those scenes where he's tending to the sick more or less right after the October Revolution. If I'm remembering from the film, there is somebody who dies of typhus, which was very common in that period. It was brought home by soldiers. And then also starvation, of course. And there's the insinuation that basically this is the communist's fault and they're suppressing any news about it. And you're not allowed to say that it's actually happening. This is one of those elements where I think that they're squeezing the propaganda That's horn or whatever a little bit harder than they need to. This is going to be the first of two episodes on Mayakovsky, and who knows, if we want to get weird with it, maybe we'll do three. Today, we're going to talk about the poems that I like to call the overshares. That includes A Cloud in Pants or The Cloud in Trousers, depending on the translation you're reading from 1914 to 1915. The Backbone Flute of 1915, sort of a sequel to The Cloud in Pants. I Love from 1922. And about this, or sometimes about that from 1923, and I'm calling these the overshares because these are the ones that deal a little bit more intimately with his personal life and especially with his love life or lack thereof. In the next episode, we'll talk about the more directly political poems, but supposedly all of these poems are political and supposedly also all of these poems are autobiographical, which is interesting. That's probably one of the more interesting things about Mayakovsky, the way that he shows us that the personal is political, not always in ways that will prevent us from cringing while we read them, but in ways that are interesting and in, in ways that are really a quandary for trying to understand what it means to be an individualist and an artist in a society that's aggressively attempting to collectivize. So Rachel, Anna, what did you see in Mayakovsky's poetry that strikes you as particularly important or interesting or noteworthy? I'll be pure raging meat, or if you prefer, as the sky changes tone, I'll be absolutely tender, not a man, 
but a clown in trousers. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a wonderful interpretation, Rachel. That really was. It's, it's very. Uh, <laughs> it brings the puckishness yeah, very, of that line out. He's a dumb, but he's also a sub. Yeah. There's a sort of swishiness there that I hadn't yeah. expected. Well, he was a dandy, wasn't he? This is what I was going to go to. So I will do our first share screen. And Rachel, I'd like you to describe the picture that I show you right now. Looks like an old e-boy. You've got some <laughs> guyliner action going on, or it could just be a little sleepless. He's also got this little cap. Oh, look at me. I'm very attention-seeking. He's also got this cool cape. Like, I'm different than the in-crowd. I'm not going to be like everybody else. He's also got this glaring look. He's like, no, I'm not going to be like them. He's very individualistic. He doesn't give a shit what other people like. And he really likes his dogs. Ooh, woo. <laughs> He's wearing a cravat and a cloak and yeah. This, yeah. this beautiful yeah. floppy hat. And yeah, he looks like if e-boy is the term, I'll, I'll say sure. Yeah, an e-boy. This is one of my favorite photos of Mayakovsky because like if not for that <laughs> glaring piercing into your soul dark yeah. eyes you could completely miss the fact that it's vladimir mayakovsky yeah he looks so soft except <laughs> yeah. for that scowl that he perpetually had well yeah. frankly it makes me think of the new romantics in the 1980s like, yes he yes. looks exactly like those musicians like, and honestly yeah, yeah it is a look that comes around and comes around and comes around so it's like the turn mm -hmm. of the century dandies he's obviously trying to reappropriate that then yep. as a futurist to be like fuck you i'll dress how i want it's, mm -hmm. it comes around with with the new romantics i remember the late pre-disbanding uh refused sometimes mm. would dress a bit like this too yep it's like almost a queer look i was gonna say if i saw this in new york but with a cropped cloak i would not be surprised but yeah i wouldn't yeah. be either <laughs> i yeah. would wear a cropped mm -hmm. cloak it's timeless somehow it's timeless yes. even if it's a look that is incredibly specific and really weird this is the 1910 mayakovsky i mean you can see he's really young so he starts out as a communist very early in his life. He's a straight up teenage Bolshevik activist. Mm -hmm. And he goes to prison for a period of time. What did he go to prison for? For smuggling female political activists out of prison. So I'm not sure if this is supposed <laughs> to be his like smugglers get up or if this is his futurist poet get up or if there's a difference. It's an interesting look. And there's some suggestion that he had something sexually embarrassing in his young life. It's hard to tell what that was, mm. whether he was bisexual or whatnot, but we see him hanging out with radical Bolshevik feminists early on. I don't know, mm -hmm. maybe that's the kind of yeah. way that he rolled. Later on, once he's out of prison, he goes to art school, but he's really mainly self-taught. He had originally come from, in terms of his class status, he came from a family that was sort of technically descended from the nobility, but they were like the fallen nobility. They didn't really have any money. And so that's how he sort of grows up in the working class with these radical Bolshevik politics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then around 1912 or so, I mean, this is a real whirlwind from smuggling prisoners to like joining the futurist movement and writing yeah. this manifesto, a slap in the face of public taste or co-writing it which is you know sort of what we'd expect from a futurist manifesto it's basically fuck and then you list all the great writers of your country <laughs> i was gonna say the order is important here like we okay. saw in marinetti you fuck first and then all the stupid war shit after that <laughs> <laughs> the not fucking mayakovsky is the one that we know better i guess 
the incel Mayakovsky is the yeah, one the, that, the that is bearing his it, soul yeah. to the world. There's something interesting with World War One coming into this, which is that World War One rather famously split the socialist movement. And in the case of Italy, the right wing of the socialist party essentially became the germ of what was to become the fascist party. Like I have folks the, like Mussolini, yeah. Mussolini, yeah. Mussolini yeah. was on the right wing of the Italian socialist party. He breaks with them, forms the fasci, and Marinetti becomes a fascist in the wake of this. And, you know, he declares futurism is innately fascist. Actually, the Russian socialist movement supported the war at first, too. Except that very clearly. Uh, yeah, very and, clearly and supposedly clearly. Mayakovsky was briefly pro-war, but then that got buried later on. It's sort of hard to see what that means anyway. I mean, heck, at the beginning of the war, most of the socialist movement in Russia, as well as most of Russia, was for the war. I actually think this is something that the film version of Dr. Zhivago gets correctly, but it might okay, be that they're yeah. falling for some of Lenin's self-aggrandizing revisionary storytelling. But I do think they get this right, at least insofar as the Bolshevik party told this story to itself, that mm -hmm. they were putting all their chips on, yes, let's go to war, let's let it wreck the country, and then we'll sweep in and we'll take it over. I don't I'm, think it was quite sure that if, intentional, but no. that's sort of how it shook out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not a Leninist, haven't been for quite some time, but I'm also not anti-Leninist. My interpretation is just he frankly got the sequence of events of what the war was going to do to Russia. He got it right. He got and a lot right, which is probably embarrassing for a lot of socialists who think that authoritarianism is an embarrassing thing. Right, uh, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, of course, you get to about 21, 22, and then, you know, it becomes a lot harder very quickly to keep putting your shoulder behind the Bolshevik wheel quite as sincerely I think this is relevant to Mayakovsky. I mean, I know probably in the next part is when we're going to discuss his poem to Lenin. And it's yeah. actually a beautiful tribute to what it means to pour yourself into a cause like revolution and the idea of building a fundamentally different vision for the world. And Lenin's own take on Mayakovsky was really interesting. I think it was him who first called Mayakovsky a communist hooligan. Yeah, I fucking love that designation. And so did Mayakovsky. I don't, I don't know what it is about the word hooligan. It keeps getting thrown around. <laughs> Apparently, Eisenstein called Giga Vertov a hooligan. He's like, this is just camera hooliganism. He wasn't into that. And so similarly, it seems like the kind of thing that people would say when an artist was just being experimental for the sake of being experimental, mm -hmm. they called them hooligans. Again, it's hard to tell what elements of these things are true and what elements of these things get retold mm -hmm. as party propaganda. But the version that I've heard of it is Lenin at first says, what's all this hooliganism with this right. weirdo yeah. who's writing these really long, creepy overshares? Like, why are we publishing a thousand of these? Are a thousand people right. going to even understand this? Lenin really conservative literary tastes too. Most of the working class readers in the early Soviet Union did as well, because I mean, people mm -hmm. read what they're interested in, people read what they're used to. Mm -hmm. And of course, the whole point of first the futurists and then of, I don't know, are we supposed to pronounce it LEF or LEF? The journal, no. uh, the left front of the arts was to basically try and push Soviet culture to the avant-garde. That's where prolet cult comes in. And yeah. the relationship between the futurists and prolet cult is really interesting also. Yeah. They're allies, but they also love to sling shit at each other. But there's like, so much shit know, slinging, yes. I think there was somebody who Mayakovsky had editorial beef with in left, like ended up throwing himself out a fucking window, you know, a couple <laughs> years after Mayakovsky killed himself because 
it was one of those situations where like the secret police arrest you. They're like, we don't really like your writing. They leave you next to an unlocked window and it's like, I hope nothing happens. And so Mm -hmm. I guess we'll never really know if he just took the hint and was like, I guess this is better than being tortured or if they threw him out the window or whatever. But the point is, it's all well and good to sling shit at each other. Just don't kill each other with the apparatus of government. (laughs) That's not really necessary. I mean, these are artistic disputes. So Lenin is like, well, what the fuck is this? Why are we publishing this guy's 50-page tract about how much he wants to have sex with his editor's wife? Early on in the Soviet Union, that didn't necessarily mean that you were an enemy of the state or anything. You're just a fucking weirdo, you know? And they had actual enemies to fight. It was during Mm -hmm. the Civil War. But it was a couple years after that where Lenin apparently reads the poem All Meeting to Out. If anybody's been a leftist, <laughs> you know what it's like you know to be all meeting to out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Lenin reads this poem and then he mentions it in a speech. He's like, some of our young poets are, you know, saying the important things, which is that there's such a thing as too much meetings. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so like Lenin takes a moment to go off on this tangent about how meetings suck. And he name checks Mayakovsky and everybody's like, oh shit, Lenin likes Mayakovsky. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then after Mayakovsky's suicide, Mayakovsky was never a happy man. That's pretty obvious. But also, you know, you could see Soviet Union getting more and more repressive and for them Mm -hmm. getting their noodle into more and more artist business. So Mayakovsky's suicide is not really a surprise on a few different levels. But years after that, of course, when it's safe to do so, and well, now you can, with the apparatus of state, shape his memory. Stalin makes the proclamation. Yes, of course. Mayakovsky is a great poet. Then everybody who grows up in the Soviet Union during that period ends up, I guess, hating him because they have to read things like My Soviet Passport, passport. which I kind of love, but... It means something fundamentally different than the way Stalin means it. There's the chauvinism of the weak, and then there's the chauvinism of the strong. And those are two different things. And I want to throw it to you. What are your thoughts on Mayakovsky's work? What do you get out of these poems? What are your immediate takeaways? Yeah, I mean, I have some comments on his cape. You know, he's quite the dresser. And you can tell that, yeah, this man was never a happy man because he always wears that signature scowl. But as for what I take away from his poetry, I guess I'd have to focus on more of the mental health aspect if we're going to talk about that like my favorites are the ones where he really overshares and and most people I'm sure would avoid those but past one o'clock is probably my favorite because I've had friends that have been there so I can really add Mm -hmm. on the level and it also connects I think to what was going on at the time too Mm -hmm. yeah one of our most popular episodes was our episode with Amiri Baraka And back when he was Leroy Jones, his first collection of poetry in 1961 was called Preface to a 20-Volume Suicide Note. Oh, yes, yeah. And that is the most Mayakovskyan title for anything I could think of. Mm -hmm. That is really summing up Mayakovsky's career, where he's always writing the preface to something. He's always writing a long Mm -hmm. something. It actually reminds me of Beckett. I can't go on. I can't go on. I'll go on. Yeah, yeah, precisely, (laughs) precisely. There is something that I think with someone like Amiri Baraka, he's also commenting on sort of the necropolitics, politics of death that are always hovering over what it means to be Black in America, of course. Yeah, for sure. Um, It's got got a different resonance that way, yeah. Yeah, sure. But that being said, uh, as a German revolutionary, German communist, yeah, I think he was thrown in jail 
and then maybe killed right after the Spartacist uprising. But he said, oh. us communists are dead men on leave. Oh, man. And it's this notion of, you see this in certain segments, certainly in the more like romantic parts of the communist movement and the, and the left, this notion that we, we are not living for ourselves. In some ways, the most poignant example of it is Huey Newton's autobiography. He calls it revolutionary suicide. He yeah. talks about like, you adopt these politics and you know immediately that you're going to have a target on your back. Now, it's one thing to over-romanticize that on a political level. That's frankly dangerous, if you ask me. But to do it in poetry is pretty magnificent. I think this is actually where the discussion of depression is necessary, as Anna was talking about. Certainly people of our generation and younger are starting to make this argument a lot more forcefully lately. You can't separate discussions about mental health and mental illness from what's happening in the world, from yeah. what's happening politically. That also has been driven home once again by this past year when even what tiny little slivers of stability the millennial and post-millennial generations have been able to grab onto, even that has been taken away from us. So this idea of being able to stare into the abyss and say, fuck you, requires a certain amount of comfort with oblivion that I think our parents didn't really prepare us for. And someone like Mayakovsky, you know, like Russia before World War I and before the revolution, you want to talk about a, a country that had a really, really severe dual character to it. It had the largest metalworks in the world. It was one of the most technologically advanced industrial sectors in the world. And yet most of its population was not working class. It was peasantry. Uh -huh. You know, you have a country that's able to produce literary giants like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. But at the time of the war, most people can't read. You know, Mayakovsky and, and other artists this is what I was saying earlier with the stuff about time and the past and the future. They're always looking sort of into the abyss of the past and hoping and sort of just throwing themselves on the gears of time so that maybe the future can be something fundamentally different and maybe even utopian. What does that do to your psyche to be constantly living between two worlds? And these overshares, like, do they get a little creepy sometimes? Yes. <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, they do. And I think there is a legitimate feminist criticism of Mayakovsky that can be kind of harsh and validly harsh, but also to be able to say my love is connected, my broken heart is connected with the war that is sending hundreds of thousands of people into the jaws of death. There's a certain amount of bravery there that I don't think we should write off. As a matter of yeah. fact, I think that's kind of the core of what Mayakovsky yeah. is getting at there. If there's nothing here, I'll we just left off uh, Mayakovsky when he was starting to get involved with the Futurists. How would you describe these guys? If I'm being honest, they kind of look like, I don't know, wannabe theater kids. Yes. <laughs> um, oh no. my God. You took the what words right out of my vibe, mouth. What you're yeah. getting the vibe from is the dude on the right with his leg over the chair. That is like, <laughs> a strong bisexual signal. Oh, for sure. They look like the type of people that just like hang out in the parking lot after school maybe smoke and like talk shit on other people yeah they're definitely Jesus shit talkers yeah. they're definitely Frank, shit talkers. it was us that was Frank, us yeah we it were, was us in we high were, school we were smoking in the parking lot and talking shit on people that's true <laughs> they probably would have been like the one posting like edgy quotes not explaining it on their facebook wall with pretty backgrounds you know <laughs> you know that would have totally been them I don't know, but they'd definitely be into, like, Manic Pixie Dream Girls, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This all tracks. I heartily endorse these interpretations.
I think the one thing we see with the futurists a lot is that they are ready to get in fights, like actual physical fights. And we see that here. We see this toughness and bravado. Like a couple of these guys in the back, especially look like, you know, if you cross them, they'll like fucking bust you. But then there's also some softness. Like you say, there's some bisexual or some queer or even genderqueer presentation here. And that's not unlike, you know, what we see with Mayakovsky's presentation, you know, as he's sort of trying out different ways of posing with his cigarette, wearing his cravat, his hair. It's like, hey, hey, I'm going to fight for your love and you better accept it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. I've said this before, and I don't know how much this squares with the actual literature on Mayakovsky, but I think it makes sense where I'll say that because of this, the Marxist term for it, you already brought up, Alex, is combined and uneven development Mm -hmm. that we have in Russia in this period. We also have this combined and uneven development in the superstructure. And so therefore, with the futurist movement in Russia, Unlike the futurist movement in Italy, you literally have whatever remnants of romanticism might have been there, like the radical romanticism that you would have seen in other countries a literal hundred fucking years earlier gets smushed straight into futurism and becomes the same movement. Yes, yes. I very much see that in Mayakovsky, in his self-presentation, and even somewhat in the style of his verses. We don't always get this in the translation, but he's very known for his rhymes, which Mm -hmm. doesn't seem to me like a futurist technique. But then again, I don't read fucking Russian. So if I'm wrong, (laughs) too bad. But I feel like there's an approach to certainly love, an approach to the world an approach to the self that strikes me as very much romantic Mm -hmm. as well as then like shoehorning that romanticism into the futurist boot so like i said the futurists are troublemakers everywhere they go and that might mean different things in different countries but they are theater kids rachel they absolutely are because they go into town they're Mm -hmm. performing their poetry they're acting out plays they're picking literal fights with people and even the way they dress is supposed to be provocative We have stories about this like very specific yellow shirt that Mayakovsky used to wear. Yellow was their color. Artistic movements having a color is kind of a cool idea, I guess. Mm. You'd think it would be red, but you know, once you put the red and yellow together, well, there you go. There's there's your communist color. There's the Soviet flag. Yeah, yeah. that works. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that too. Those two. Ronald Ronald McLennan. Ronald McLennan. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> that one guy in that photo is wearing a shirt that looks almost like a referee shirt. So, you mm-hmm, know, the futurist mm-hmm. would pick clothing that was like intentionally loud and obnoxious. You know, and Mayakovsky was always famous for his readings. Here he is getting ready to do a reading. This is as dandied out as I've ever seen him. Like he looks like a capitalist. It's, this is 1914. So it's pre-revolution. He's got his long cigarette. He's wearing gloves. He's got, is that a riding crop? Is that a cane? I either I a cane or a, a riding crop. It looks like Charles Dickens, oh where he's reading a Christmas story during yeah, the episode yeah. with the Gelf. Oh, yes. This is around the time that he writes A Cloud in Pants, which, as I said, is the last of his poems written to Maria. Uh, yeah, it's Maria, who is, as far Maria. as I'm remembering, she's a girl or a young woman. I'm not sure her age or if their ideas of adulthood in this era are going to match ours. 
he claimed that the cloud in pants was a fuck everything poem though i'm not sure if it actually squares with that so let's talk a little bit about the cloud in pants like i said it is very much an overshare very much a i'm in love with you you've rejected me i can't go on i'll go on poem but then Mayakovsky sort of repackaged it as a fuck religion, fuck the czar, fuck capitalism, fuck history, fuck literature poem. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's in it too, but maybe less systematically than he claimed. It's certainly one of my favorites. Rachel, Anna, why don't you tell us what struck you about this poem that you want to talk about? And then we'll go from there. It's just him yelling out because he's such a lonely individual and he just wants somebody to love him. Yeah. Um, but he is also yeah. getting angry to some degree. Grab a rock, a knife, a bomb, and if you don't have any arms, use your forehead. Come on, you little starving, sweating, timid, moldy, lice-infested clods. Come on! We'll paint Monday and Tuesday with blood and make them holidays. At knife point, let the earth remember those she tried to vulgarize. The earth, the flesh, as Rothschild overpetted mistress. Like, he's just yelling out he's so lonely. And then he gets angry because nobody's listening to him. So he just perpetuates this craziness and he just alienates himself more because he's trying to be heard. Mm -hmm. There's an element of this that absolutely goes to what I would call the cultural critique of radical politics, Mm -hmm. which is that if you listen to any right winger or even certain moderates who are on the more dismissive side of things, talk about what it means to be a communist or what it means to be an anarchist or whatever, they'll be like, oh, well, you're just frustrated with the way that the world is. And because you have your own personal problems, you want to fucking bring everything down for everybody else. You think that because you personally are going through some hard shit, you ought to destroy the world. And maybe it's just, you need to get laid. And like, literally that is the poem that Mayakovsky is writing. (laughs) Literally he is like, I can't get laid. And also therefore let's destroy everything. I find it amazing that he's that on the nose and yet still kind of gets away with it. And it is futurist in that sense of it is a glorification of violence and a glorification of an almost universal violence that if you do the slightest bit of scratching the surface comes down to his own inadequacies as a man Mm -hmm. or his perception Mm -hmm. of his own inadequacies. Anna, what do you think? Listen, I I gotta be honest with you, like I'm still trying to understand it, even after multiple readings. And when I say understand it, I mean understand it for myself. I guess I'd have to focus on just the composition. Like I read in the back of the book, his lectures on his actual verse. And that was fascinating to see how he went through step by step and composed that. So obviously, we've talked about what this poem is. But for me, At least, I guess, just for him, I admire how he's kind of genius in the way that he passes it off, but also stupid at the same time, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's why why we love him. He's a brilliant idiot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In a certain way, that does make him, I'd like to think in his own mind, maybe in the minds of the people who enjoyed his verse, kind of the perfect communist poet. He is, in his own way of going about things, kind of wonderfully blending the intellectualism of, say, the critique of the culture with this boneheaded, working-class, fuck-the-world attitude. Yeah, yeah. 
I completely agree with that. And his ability to just sort of say that his own silly little petty interpersonal problems can also be epic being able to believe his own idiot mind until he's convinced himself he's a genius. Um, <laughs> it's just, certainly that's what a lot of us haven't gone through any of the educational system, which basically only teaches you to, and unless you're you know lucky enough to get a teacher that can help you break with it, but it's the notion that you're basically only trained to just be a worker. Certainly in early 20th century Russia, there was no universal education as far as I can remember. Well, for uh, a lot of people, there wasn't any education. Yeah, there wasn't yeah. any education. Yeah. Yeah, Mayakovsky yeah. got a little bit of it, but it seems like sure, he mostly yeah, he taught was, himself. Yeah. And he started yes, writing yes. poetry in prison, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. And you see yeah, that coming yeah. back where like, he's always in a metaphorical prison, but it's worth noting that, well, he was at one point literally a teenager in prison. And that's when he was yes, like, well, I guess yes. I have to write. Which is, which is pretty mind-blowing. Can't fuck. Think about it. Also. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not getting laid in here. Um, well, uh, maybe that's what made him feel so insecure maybe that yeah, is exactly yeah. what was going on because like i said people have speculated that there was something embarrassing something that he considered embarrassing that happened when he was young it, yeah, some sure, people have yeah. speculated he may have had homosexual contact whether that was mm -hmm. in prison or at some other time and that he was always always feeling mm -hmm. like that made him less of a man which would explain some things yeah two comments real quick Especially if we're talking about the education system, like the notion that we're just numbers really mm -hmm. down to mm -hmm. it. And then also, is jail not the time to experiment? I mean, I, what I, <laughs> I know very little about the conditions of political prisoners in early 1900s Russia. Well, the uh, shocking maybe, thing is it seems like they maybe? just got free constantly. It's outrageous. Yeah, right. Like Lenin and Trotsky, both on multiple oh, occasions, yeah, just uh, fucking yeah, walked. The logic was if we just put you really far from everything else, I guess it'll be really hard for you to get back. But that just meant yeah. the people who were the most dedicated revolutionaries were just like, okay, I'm leaving. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just yeah. going to go hike through Siberia for a little yeah. while. See you <laughs> back in Moscow. There's something that I wanted to pull out in A Cloud and Trousers. The translation I'm going off of is the Hayward Reavy translation. So he's gone through plenty of mourning about Maria, about the unrequited love and everything. And he says, the scorched figurines of words and numbers scurry from the skull like children from a flaming building. Thus fear in its effort to grasp the sky lifted high the flaming arms of the Lusitania into the calm of an apartment where people quake a hundred-eyed blaze bursts from the docks. Moan into the centuries. If you can, a last scream, I'm on fire. The reason that that passage popped out to me in this rereading when I was preparing for this podcast is because it just struck me that by the time he finished the poem, the Lusitania had been sunk just a few months before. Just like when the Titanic sank, it was very much like a 9-11 type moment. And one of those moments that was a sort of defined militarism of World War I. And so for him to make his own broken heart equivalent to the sinking of a ship. Again, it's like this intense gutsiness of just saying, yes, my broken heart is a national disaster. Yeah. Or if we want to be more crude along the lines of the way we put it in this discussion, my not getting laid is a national disaster. <laughs> But if you also think about how many of us have gone through, be it heartbreak or disappointment at a job or like some sort of financial disaster in our own lives, you're walking down the street and you're completely obsessed. Just your whole universe is this thing that's going wrong in your life. 
Yeah. You know, it can, it can be like a sick relative or, or anything <laughs> like that. And then you're walking down the street because we put ourselves in this little robotic kind of routine, like on our way to work or whatever. And then all of a sudden you look up and you see a headline, you know, of a plane crash or a shipwreck. And all of a sudden, some part of your <laughs> that's brain, me <laughs> yeah yeah some part of your brain i mean you know we, we laugh about it but some part of your brain does make that connection in one way and is it arrogant is it egotistical sure but again in the context of a world that's telling us we're just numbers and we're only as good as the amount of surplus value that we can generate then it becomes your way of like screaming against the world and just saying no Fuck you, I exist. Every single part of my emotional and psychological self is worthy of respect and regard. There are two directions that my mind takes that. One is that it's gutsy and outrageous, intentionally so. How Mayakovsky does this and says, yes, yes, I am the Lusitania. I mean, this is after a whole several stanzas on the burning imagery here. People sniff the smell of burning flesh. Tell the firemen to climb lovingly when a heart's on fire. Leave it to me. Mm. I'll pump barrels of tears from my eyes. I'll brace myself against my ribs. I'll leap out, out, out. Mm. They've collapsed, but you can't leap out of the heart. Like if I could only evacuate my body, how wild is that? And this style of extreme hyperbole is something that we see in a lot of the futurist writing. Mm -hmm. Of all the various nations that have different strains of futurist writing, it is one thing that brings them together. And he always is going hyperbolic. He always goes to the overstatement. And it's really wild because it's not necessarily what we know modernism for. I think that the aspect of making the personal struggle an epic is very much in the modernist vein. It's in a strong tradition in a lot of different strains of modernism, but usually it goes in the opposite direction toward making the understated tragedies, the soft, quiet tragedies of the world. You know, the one that everybody probably is forced to read more than anything else is Death of a Salesman or something like that, right? You know, or if you're inclined to be tormented by me for an hour or two on T.S. Eliot, it's, you know, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. But it's kind of amazing that Mike just goes completely 180 degrees and then launches off into the sky like no it's not a quiet tragedy i'm going to make the quiet tragedy the loudest thing that i can Mm -hmm. make it all of his poems are these screams into the abyss originally the title of a cloud in pants was the 13th apostle that he was referring to himself (laughs) as like yes i am the 13th apostle and he was like intentionally trying to be blasphemous and the czarist censor said, no, 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 you're not going to get away with that title. We're, we'll call it the cloud in pants because you say that you're going to not be wild and outrageous. You're going to be soft and delicate like a cloud in pants. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know, for whatever reason, I must think that pants is a funnier word than trousers, but they're both pretty funny. He came yeah. to like the title eventually. There's obviously something very sarcastic about it. Look how soft I'm being. And sure. also there's something really nonsensical in the image that's very futurist. And I guess there's something sexual in that we're talking about pants, we're talking about trousers, we're talking about Mm -hmm. the lower half of the body. Mm -hmm. But the direction that I'm thinking that that makes sense, that making an outrageous universal political epic, the direction in which that makes sense is that actually all around us, 
capitalism, the systems that we operate under are always trying to convince us, no, this is your own quiet personal tragedy. Yes. The bank foreclosed on your house. You're going to have to move. This is your own problem. You yeah. have to deal with it. You go, History you lost your job, had nothing whatever. to do with this. This yeah. is you. Yeah. And the political maneuver is to realize, oh, this is a whole system. Oh, we're in this all together. This is a gigantic epic thing that's happening to everyone. This mm -hmm. is a big disaster. Mm -hmm. And he's realizing mm -hmm. that only he's translating it into like a very bizarre realm. And if maybe he could have taken it into some direction that was maybe more free love oriented, it would have made a bit more sense, but I don't know. Well, I was just going to say off of that too, you know, if you consider it your own quiet tragedy and then I guess in the way that it's set up or even if this is written, obviously there's multiple ways to, you know, interpret that. But doesn't that wind you from even realizing what is going on around you? And yeah. to realize that, you know, this actually isn't your own quiet tragedy. You are living within multiple systems mm -hmm. of power that mm -hmm. may or may not be terrible. Yeah, yeah. Definitely are. absolutely true. Yeah. Absolutely true. It's interesting with that. And this gets to the question of the title, too, because I think it's in the edition I have on page 89. It says, suddenly... The clouds and other cloudy things in the sky will roll and pitch madly as if workers in white went their way after declaring a bitter strike against the sky. More savagely, thunder strode from a cloud, friskily snorting from enormous nostrils, and then for a second, the sky's face was twisted in the Iron Chancellor's grim grimace. So he's talking about if he's a cloud, then he's equating his ability to love. And by that same notion, everyone's ability to love as a kind of strike, as a kind of withdrawal of labor. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I remember yeah. actually, I, I went to a really great lecture years back by uh, Silvia Federici. She did a whole, I can't remember what book she was promoting. I think it was about witchcraft. And she yeah. made the point that I'd never thought of before, but once you say it, it's obvious, which is mm -hmm. that capitalism tells you when you can and when you can't have sex. She says, there's nobody having sex on a Monday morning. Well, in that <laughs> period of my life, I was very precariously employed. So yeah, I actually you know, might have sex on a Monday morning from time to time, <laughs> but the point still stands that capitalism tells you all the time what you can do in your personal life because it structures mm -hmm. all our lives and that structures our love lives. It structures our family lives. Mm -hmm. It structures mm -hmm. everything about everything. And it is in a certain sense, what makes free love impossible. Mm -hmm. Foucault mm -hmm. ultimately gets at that toward the end of the introduction to history of sexuality. He doesn't quite put his finger on it, but he more or less begins gesturing to the idea that marriage only evolves as a survival strategy for people within a capitalist system, because yeah. that's like yeah. the only way that you can actually keep reproducing people on as little money as you get paid in this system. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the privatization of the production of the next generation mm -hmm. of workers. Yeah. And not even that, though, like, it's not even just about sex for a while. It was even who you could love and when you could yes. love, right. not even mm -hmm. the physical mm -hmm. love, though, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah. So Mayakovsky, I don't know if he ever met Alexandra Kolontai. It wouldn't have surprised me at all. But, you know, she was a Bolshevik and a major sort of leader of getting the Bolsheviks to take a better position on women's liberation. And she was also an advocate of free love. And a lot of people, more stodgy people in, in the Bolshevik party were a little scandalized by that. But, you know, she would also say that I live as freely as I can. 
fuck whatever man or woman or whoever that I want to. So it's not like these conceptions of intimacy and love are foreign to Mayakovsky. You know, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, we'll we'll get to talking about Lily Brick later. Her husband was apparently fine with her having an affair with Mayakovsky. And like, they would, the three of them would even go on vacation together. You can only imagine what an intensely religious society pre-revolutionary Russia was. You can only imagine the types of clucking of tongues and whispers behind their backs would go on with that. So the idea of being able to say our full collective liberation of love is somehow synonymous with a strike against the sky. On top of it being a beautiful sort of coming full circle back to the cloud imagery. Yeah, It's a lovely kind of declaration of the unfulfilled promise of free love. And he talks about that elsewhere. He writes about how basically all of his poetry is about love. And I think this probably comes in where he's trying to square the circle in about this. Yeah, it is about love. It's about romantic love, but it's also about comradely love. Mm -hmm. It's also Mm -hmm. about our love for the future world that we're going to build Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. A love of existence. Yeah. It's amazing how he then like turns that against nature in this really wild fashion. Mm-hmm. And I want to suggest that there's a whole subgenre of specifically futurist writing, which is getting angry at the sky or the sun or the clouds. <laughs> because oh, sunrise and sunset. Oh, sunrise oh, and sunset. Oh, uh, oh, no, this is different. That's irony or uh, sorrow, I suppose, or anxiety That's, that you get in the British war literature. But I'm thinking more like Mafarka, the futurist. He yeah. like literally yeah. wants to destroy the sun. He's like, fuck you, son. I'm going to build an airplane. We're going to send it up there and we're going to fucking blow you up. This is where the sort of nuances of futurism and the distinctions between fascist futurism and communist futurism both get a little muddied, but also get kind of clarified. Okay. I think I almost see it akin to the questions of left accelerationism versus right wing accelerationism. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. And and you know, if they had that terminology back then, then we would have definitely been calling Lenin a left accelerationist. acceleration. I mean, he had the more technical term of revolutionary defeatism, but that's the idea. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and keep in mind that Mayakovsky always performed his poems. He always read them out loud live. And sometimes he'd go into factories to do this because, of course, he's a communist. And it didn't always go over well. I mean, imagine somebody reading I love to you while you're trying to go about your day. Yeah, he probably did seem like a crazy person. For yeah, sure. th- no doubt about that. I think that this gets into some of the things about prolet cult and mm-hmm. after the revolution, trying to form mass revolutionary arts organizations. What would they embrace? They would embrace the stuff that they've never had the time to read up until that point. So uh-huh. the first place they go are the classics. They go to Shakespeare, yeah. they go to Tolstoy, yeah. but they also come up with reinterpretations of them yeah. that I don't think we give enough credit for. Prolet cult, I think, in a lot of the official art histories of Russia is looked at as kind of an embarrassing little flub of some experimental art school kids who thought they were going to form a mass organization and failed because they were talking over the heads of workers. But mm-hmm. Prolet cult was an organization of 800,000 people. It was huge. So yes, of course, are they starting from Shakespeare and some of the basics and things like that? Yes, but they're also reinterpreting them and finding new ways of performing and rewriting them that could be incredibly interesting. 
So in some ways, it's starting in this flourishing of radical artistic democracy. In some ways, this idea of how do you democratize culture? And how do you democratize technology at the same time? Make the technological innovations of the factory democratically accessible to everyone to make their lives better. To me, that's what the Russian futurists were embracing. The idea of using technology to make everyone's everyday life an adventure. Yeah. You know, a, a wonderful adventure. Whereas and, the fascist Italian futurists wanted to use that technology to atomize. Yes, yes, to, to break kill. everyone down, to, <laughs> to eliminate those who were deemed useless or lesser than. And again, you see the parallels with left accelerationism versus right accelerationism yeah. today. The dark enlightenment folks who just want to use technology to atomize and turn us into drones. And the left accelerationists who want universal basic income and uh, you know full automation of work. The parallel works almost in this stupidly obvious way. <laughs> well, so yeah, and there's some weird things coming together here, kind of by chance in you know the way that things have come to my attention. But first off, yeah, the idea of using technology to make life an adventure. I mean, we see that in Veritov's Man with the movie camera, where of he's like kind of trying to show people, well, this is how the camera operates. This is what you can do with it. Anyone who can have access to this technology can use it to make this kind of a film, and that's really cool and way ahead of its time. And as a poet, I think it's really cool. You have a sort of similar thing going on where the access to the press has been democratized as well to where Mayakovsky has his poem he wants to publish. And the argument that even Lenin, who's like, this guy's a hooligan, the argument that's being had between Lenin and the people who are in charge of deciding on such things is like, okay, how many of these are we realistically going to print? I mean, ultimately, it does become a question when there are fewer resources or if your ideas are less popular or I guess if you just suck as a writer. But, you know, ultimately, there do become questions of whether the thing gets printed at all. But it does feel like more optimistic in a sense that the idea of having a nationalized press does give people like Mayakovsky a real opportunity to push the envelope and print things that a capitalist publisher might not be willing to take a risk on. Precisely, yes. And that's because the people who are deciding what gets published are the poets. The bricks were, yeah, technically editors in a certain sense, but you had this more of a community spirit there as opposed to Mm -hmm. that very clear class distinction between the owners of the means of the production and the producers. Mm -hmm. This is what makes it communist by definition. But in that optimism about technology, it goes all the way to the end. And I remember in the long ago episode of Locust Radio, you were talking about this wild idea that took hold in the early Soviet Union that they were going to be able to physically oh, resurrect the people. Cults, the yeah, the idea resurrection of physical yeah. resurrection. And yes. holy shit, I got to the end of about this. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about literal immortality. Yeah, and everyone. so there are science fiction elements to some of these poems, certainly mm-hmm. like the flying proletarians, the most obvious, even in something like a about this that shows up. Mayakovsky wins over the bricks when he reads A Cloud in Pants to them. So imagine the absolute freak of a woman, Lily Brick, who (laughs) after having this dude who does not (laughs) look like a nice guy read A Cloud in Pants to her in her living room or whatever is like, Honey, I think that maybe, uh, you know, the three of us could, uh, <laughs> could uh, 
can Find work with things. And, yeah. and, so, <laughs> and so then like the next poem he writes, The Backbone Flute, is his first dedicated to her and she becomes his muse for the majority of his mm -hmm. career. And here we'll look at another share screen photo. This is from 24. So this is a little bit later on, but this is a great collection of people. Yeah. We've got Pasternak, yeah. Eisenstein, yep. the Bricks. Yeah, God. And there's Mayakovsky, who's towering over everybody else. He like, was a monstrously tall He was dude. huge. And that's the thing is that he's always talking about his vulnerability. But you have to imagine him standing in these rooms and reading his poem. He must have just scared the shit out of people. He's the one with the bald head, too. Yeah. yeah. So this is when he was yeah. in his radical skinhead phase. Yeah, that doesn't... <laughs> That doesn't help if you're trying not to, like, intimidate people. Yeah, he was an imposing figure. Anna, you'll notice your boy Pasternak's over there in the, I know. In the back on the left, right next to Eisenstein. What's up, dude? Which is worth noting that, of course, the filmmakers who translated Zhivago to the screen wanted it to come off as this like anti-communist story, which I mean, it's certainly ambivalent about communism. There's no doubt about that. But Pasternak is in this same crew. He was part of the group that was publishing Left. He mm -hmm. considered himself one of the Soviet avant-garde. You know, he has different taste in poetry than somebody like Mayakovsky, but he saw common cause with these yes. folks. Yeah, the idea that it's certainly the film is anti-communist, but the idea that it's source material, its original one, is is just this strident. It's an oversimplification. Yeah, it's a very long novel that has a lot to say. Yeah, yeah. it does. So The Backbone Flute and two other poems that are not published as frequently in English. I don't know if they've been translated into English. Man in the Universe and one that's just called Man are, I think, his last major poems before the revolution. And I guess I'll just note that Man in the Universe, because of a freakish coincidence of the Russian language, it would literally be the same title as Tolstoy's War and Peace, because peace and earth or peace and the universe, there are homonyms in Russian for reasons mm -hmm. that I guess don't necessarily have to make sense because those are languages for you. Once we get into the revolutionary period, I mean, this is the Mayakovsky that everybody knows best. This is the Mayakovsky that's photographed by Rodchenko in, like I said, his skinhead phase where he's mm -hmm. in his sharp suit and fedora and boots. And he's got, oh, a half dozen pens and pencils in his pocket. Mm -hmm. He's ready to write. Of course, he's still got his cigarette like always. And he collaborates with Rodchenko on a number of books where Rodchenko would do either photographs or collages for him. Stuff like the conversation with the tax collector on poetry. And then as we're about to talk about, about this. Honestly, though, bar fight, tax collector would have no chance. <laughs> yeah. He loved to get into fights. Yeah. Just off the top of my head, I'm not recalling anything. Do we know how he did in those fights? I mean, he's a big dude. I can't imagine he lost many of them. Yeah, I don't know if he won his fights. I would suspect that he probably backed down from a lot of fights, too. I would suspect that there were some days where he wasn't ready to fight. Be like, I'm too sad. I can't fight. 
Yeah, all of those futurists were certainly into fighting. There's no yeah, doubt about yeah. that. And he was bigger than average. So yeah, I can't yeah. imagine that he lost a lot of fights. But I, 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 I also a... wonder how common fighting was back then. I'd like to just sort of imagine that it was just something that happened more often. I feel like these days the fight is broken up before it even starts. Where do you even get into a physical fight with an artistic rival? It's going to be in a place that's probably pretty quick to call the cops too. Unless you're living in, you know, a failed state or a state that's attempting to, to reconstruct to? itself. I'm just saying, you know, in Mayakovsky's circumstances, there wasn't often police to call, you know? Yeah, true, true. I think I'm just going to skip over Backbone Flute unless you have something that you want to say about it. I think it works really well in relation to Cloud and Trousers. Yeah. The poems tend to come yeah. in pairs. And yeah, even even I'm reading this monograph on Mayakovsky. I've got about halfway through it. And literally the approach of the monograph is basically it treats all of his poems in pairs. So Cloud and Pants and Backbone and Flute go together. Yeah, and perfect. I love yeah. and about yeah. this go together. Yeah. It's not that it's inferior to Cloud and Trousers, but I think any of the noteworthy devices and themes that it plucks on are things that we've spoken mm -hmm. about. So I don't think I have anything new to bring to that, but I will say that one of the things that just popped out to me in the first page of Backbone Flute is you start to see him more comparing himself to the greats of literature, which is another trope that you see more with the futurists. Like right after the prologue, the beginning of the first section, with far-flung steps, I crumple miles of streets. Where shall I go? Hiding within me hell. A cursed woman what heavenly Hoffman has created you in his fancy. And he's referring to E.T.A. Hoffman there, which is sort of the center of romanticism for a lot of folks, at least the, uh -huh. the early romantics. But he brings up Hoffman in this incredibly disparaging way. And again, you sort of wonder, how is it that Lily Brick wants to go to bed with this dude? Because he's basically comparing her to a hackneyed literary device. If I were Lily Brick and I heard that, Wait, you said what about me in this poem that I'm supposed to be excited about? Punch him in the friggin' nose. I'm looking for my footnote on that because I might have a different footnote. Oh, no, you're right. E.T.A. Hoffman, a German mm -hmm. romantic author, best known for fantasy and horror stories. Yeah. You interpret it as like a hackneyed thing. And this translator, this is from the McGavran translation. His note says that this is basically supposed to... Well, actually, he doesn't say this. This is my reading. I believe he's implying that okay. the okay. idea is that he's going for not so much the cheesy romantic as for the gothic, that Lily Brick uh, is like a woman demon from hell sent to torment uh, him. Yeah. And it could be both. I mean, that is kind of cheesy. <laughs> but also, McGavran notes Hoffman's name in the dative completes an unexpected rhyme. And this is something that we really have trouble with understanding reading. I'm told that he's nearly impossible to translate because he was known for outrageous rhymes. That was his thing, was mm. that he would spring a rhyme on you in a way that you wouldn't expect, or he'd make a rhyme that was so stupid that you'd be like, wow, you can't get away with that. you know. <laughs> yeah. Or in this case, it only works if you're imagining a language with declensions of nouns and then you know, putting the proper noun into the dative case, this makes no fucking sense in English, but it would sure. make sense in a lot of other languages. Basically, the point is that there would be really unexpected rhymes in his work. Mm -hmm. And so that's why sometimes it's like, why did he pull in this proper noun? It's not necessarily always because it needs to be the illusion in the way that you'd think of needing to do so in say like an English modernist sense. It might also be that he's trying to like go out of his way to be like, I didn't expect Hoffman to show up in this line mm, <laughs> and uh, I yeah, didn't expect yeah. him to rhyme with 
whatever the fuck is going on in the other line there, you know? It's almost like a technique that you see in an SNL sketch where you have a weird parody of a song and the way that the rhyme jumps in there is like, what the fuck, you know? Yeah, the rhymeability of it becomes its own punchline. So bad, it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. right, yeah, yeah, sure. That whole poem, and I think one of the things about it that makes me not like it as much, but I guess it just comes with the territory, is he really is making out Lily Brick to be this demon who's tormenting him. My lungs, they're on fire. You're an arsonist. (laughs) A pants arsonist. It's interesting because Maria, who was the object of his affection in the the previous poem, in Cloud and Trousers, rejected him. Lily Brick, evidently, at first was kind of cold towards him, but then they engaged in a torrid affair. He's a little meaner to Lily in Backbone Flute than he is to Maria in Cloud and Trousers. It's quizzical. My guess is that either correctly or incorrectly, Mayakovsky blamed his failure with Maria on her parents. I don't know for a fact, but that's sort of the sense that I get. And that's where, to my mind, it makes sense that he's aiming his pants at all of society. Because, like, (laughs) the the idea is, like, I come to your town with the literal most disreputable gang of artists imaginable, screaming my weird poetry at you. Can't therefore convince your parents that I'm a reasonable person to, you know, go off to Moscow with why is everyone against me? You know, uh, it's it's less specific to yes. this particular woman who's turned me down and much more like they can't accept us punks because yeah. we're too dangerous. You're right. That's, that's my that's reading that's of it. And, you know, I understand it only partially, but I think that that might explain why there's more anger towards Lily Brick. Yeah. And I think on top of that, you probably have a virgin whore thing going on, but yeah. that is obvious. We talked about how his religious imagery or his chiding of religious imagery in Cloud and Trousers gets him into trouble. He ends the backbone flute by saying, I'm being nailed to my cross. You know, so certainly he has a martyr complex. One of his early plays was the tragedy of Vladimir Mayakovsky. (laughs) Yeah, to say that before you've even really published anything significant is, you know, someone thinks highly of himself. But yeah, the final stanza, paint this day a bright holiday. Oh, crucifixion-like magic. Do your creation. As you see, the nails of words nail me to paper. It reminds me of that bit in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, where he's comparing himself to a butterfly being stuck Mm -hmm. into the collection. He's pinned Mm -hmm. down there. And it's, again, that similar thing where here I am, Mm. look at my suffering. Yeah. And if I don't see Anna, why don't you tell us your take on I Love and About This? Now we're into the Torrid Affair. I Love is, I would say, verging on happy. Yes, absolutely. And then About This is back to I Will Destroy Everything, including myself. Yeah, I'll start with I Love. I think, okay, obviously there's a lot here and there's a lot in all of Mayakovsky's poetry. But what I appreciate in I Love, again, is I don't know why, but the structure of it, how he goes through and he says, usually so, as a boy, as a young man. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. diversity, adults, what happened. He keeps going through all the way up until the conclusion. If you're reading it for the first time, I'd argue that all these sections and all of these subtitles kind of seem nonsensical. Like, why are they there? Other than the fact that he's trying to split it up. But what I appreciated is that, to me, he's kind of following what Veritov did. It might seem actually random, but there is this obvious progression there. And then, I don't know, I guess over anything else and over the overshares, I guess I appreciated that element. He's obviously doing this with intent. And like we were talking about earlier, too, kind of that split between the high and the low. So everyone can understand these titles in this progression, but also, you know, making it specific as well. I think this is probably his most understandable of the long poems. Yeah. It's written just sort of in a more straightforward sense. And the titles are really weird and kind of unlike him Mm -hmm. because they're super cryptic. They feel to me like they're probably just because you have this one as a boy, as a youth, my university, right? They feel to me like they're walking you through his life. But what's in the sections don't always really match up with what you expect you're going to see. As we talked about before, his as a young man section focuses mostly on his time in prison. Because as you said earlier, you know, he was sent to prison for distributing revolutionary literature, also springing female revolutionaries out of prison. What age is he? He's like 15? I, I think he's like when 15. He's, it's he's like they, 15 they grew up fast old. back then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess if we're talking about the titles, though, you definitely see the break when what you're talking about, you know, going through his life. Yeah. But later on, you get into breaking up the actual event, going to more broadly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it up, and then even on a third level breaking it up with what we were just talking about where you know sometimes there's that mismatch for me it might actually match his mental state that he's in he was such mm-hmm. a lonely man i think if i'm understanding it correctly his explanation of this poem was more or less to the effect of communism will solve all of our loneliness yes he yeah. hits the solution to his own alienation to the vision of world revolution. Yeah. Um, And again, I find it very compelling. Is it possible? (laughs) Maybe not. The best revolutionary artists are the ones who are trying to make the impossible possible. Yeah. The astounding thing about him and about, I guess, all the artists of this period, but he's a particularly good example because he's a hardline Bolshevik his whole life. The amazing thing about his trajectory is that I mean, I don't know if he made it happen, but they made it happen. You know, if we want to take this metaphor a little bit further, the shame of it is that the Bolshevik state ends up being this abusive, jealous lover. But the thing is, you can see over the course of his career, he is playing a part in making this thing happen. And that's kind of incredible. It's something that you don't see in other political writers. Ginsburg's always going to be Ginsburg because America's always going to be America, you know? Mm -hmm. But with Mayakovsky, he's changing while his society changes around him and while he is at the avant-garde of the group that is changing his society. Yeah, absolutely. But what was the section you wanted to read? It's in As a Young Man. As for me, I learned about love in Butyrki, which was the name of the prison he was in. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Does nostalgia for the Bois de Boulogne mean anything? Or to gaze at the sea and sigh in the funeral parlor, quote unquote, and I, there's a footnote, I want to get to that uh, about that later. I fell in love with the keyhole of cell 103. 
he's almost saying like the revolutionary struggle is what taught him what love is. Yeah. Which fits quite nicely with your interpretation about how the, the sort of rise of Stalinism becomes this lover that spurns him. But it's, um, it is all about jealousy, really. I mean, it's like, yes. how dare you have other ideas? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then later on, he gets to right at the beginning of the section that is adults. Adults have much to do. Their pockets are stuffed with rubles. Love? Certainly. For about a hundred rubles. But I, homeless, thrust my hands into my torn pockets and slouched about goggle-eyed. In some ways, this is just basic bohemian declaration, right? It's saying like, we're all so obsessed with money and we can't love because our materialism and consumerism and everything else has turned us into nothing but automatons. So the juxtaposition between that part and the prison cell is really, really striking for me. I mean, it's, in some ways, it's proto-Foucauldian, right? It's like, hey, I learned how to love in prison, but the whole world's a prison. And we yeah. don't know how to love, you know, like I'm being a little yeah. cheesy and flippant when I interpret it like that. But, that but it's not Mayakovsky really... if it's not cheesy and flippant. <laughs> yeah, I suppose not. <laughs> it's a wild passage. And it's also a rejection of romanticism, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So we get to the section all grown up. And he is, again, putting capitalism in opposition to love. Yes. And then he has this description of himself. This one is one where he does a lot of these short lines, but he's not in the stair step pattern yet. So instead of moving, it has this stuttering feeling to it. Whereas I, homeless, stuffed, mm -hmm. my giant hands in my torn pockets and moseyed around wide eyes. Nighttime, <laughs> you put on your best clothes, have your way with wives and widows, whereas I was smothered in Moscow's embrace by the ring of its endless sadovayas. There's your plural proper noun for you. In mm -hmm. your hearts, in your little pocket watches, mistresses tick and talk. Your partners in the love bed are thrilled, whereas I listen to the wild heartbeat of capitals lying down on Strasnaya Square. Shirt all unbuttoned, my heart almost on the outside. I expose myself to the sun and to puddles. Step right in with your passions. Clamor on in with your loves. This is uh, what we call thirsty. I mean, I like see him. I see him like laying out in front of the camera. Like, does this angle look good? This would go on a Tinder profile. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so. But that description of himself as shuffling or moseying around with his hands in his pockets. Mm -hmm. Actually, mm -hmm. he had used that earlier in the backbone flute. And he's kind of building on an idea he already had in The Cloud in Pants, which is, I know I'm this huge dude and I'm probably scary looking, but look at me, I'm very meek and quiet and I just got my hands in my pockets, I'm not doing anything, and I'm definitely not working, that's why I've got my hands in my pockets, and I wonder if this I is have feelings this too. a socialist <laughs> trope. Listen, this guy describes his own body as feverish, like, oh my oh. god, I just can't, oh. I can't with him. <laughs> He's hot like, for somebody. He's DTF. Yeah, yeah he, he definitely is. He's DTF. <laughs> Socialists with their hands in their pockets. I'm wondering if it was a trope in the era or if it's, you know, referring to just like, look at me, I'm quiet and I'm meek. Or if it's like, I'm not willing to work in this system. Or if it's like, maybe I'm touching myself. Because yeah. I have to, because no one will sleep with no me. Because <laughs> no one else will. No one else will. 
but all of these go to what we were saying at the very beginning when you first started discussing cloud and trousers, the sort of way in which your own personal tragedy can also be a historical tragedy. And somehow, you know, my actions can be fit into the grand overarching narrative. You've been listening to Professor Frank Fucile, research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homily, and special guest Alexander Billet. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Office of Research and Sponsored Programs. The songs in today's episode are For Want Of on Rights of Spring's self-titled album and Epic Problem on Fugazi's album The Argument. I've got epic problem, epic problems that are problem for me. And inside, I know I'm broken, but I'm working as far as you can see. You can support The Pointless Century at patreon.com slash thepointlesscentury. Support levels include Navel Gazer for $1.11 per month, a Shoe Gazer for $4.20 per month, and Void Gazer for $19.17 per month. Make sure to troll us on Twitter at PointlessCent and follow us on Instagram at thepointlesscentury. And if you're interested in supporting your favorite anti-fascist cultural studies podcast, click the links in the description for both our Tea Public merch and our previously mentioned Patreon. We'll see you next time with another episode of Mayakovsky on The Pointless Century.